We're so glad you're here. If you're here for the first time, welcome. We're glad you came. And if you are here every week, we're glad you're here too. Welcome back. We're in the third week of a series. It's going to last all the way through August. It's called Mountain Monologues. It's based on Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, which is found in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 5, 6, and 7. So, so far, we've had a talk about the Beatitudes, and we've had a talk about salt and light. In the message on the Beatitudes, one of the things I emphasize is, if you want to follow Jesus, he doesn't expect very much at the beginning. In fact, all he expects, first of all, is that we're poor in spirit, that we're mourning for the state of our life, and that we're meek. If we'll just humble ourselves, Jesus welcomes us to come to him. And then last week, Pastor Alex reminded us several things about salt. In fact, what he said to be uh, like salt as Jesus' disciples in his day meant to add good flavor to the world, to prevent corruption, and to create a thirst for Jesus. And then he told us we are supposed to reflect the light of Jesus in our lives as the moon reflects the light from the source of the sun. Pastor Alex offered us four specific ways that we can offer light to our world. He said, first, don't complain, which might be the hardest one on the list. And then the second one he said is, we can care for the person that we're interacting with. Third, we pray for people. And fourth, we tell the truth in love. If you missed either of those two messages, I would encourage you to go to the New Life app or newlifexn.org or else our, actually our podcast we have now, if you just want to listen while you're on your way to work or while you're jogging, whatever. Today, we turn to a new section of the Sermon on the Mount, and it's only uh, four verses long. But while it's only four verses long, it sets up the rest of the entire message of the Sermon on the Mount. These four verses are pivotal in the entire message. This passage has challenged, confused, and caused conflict among Jesus' followers for the past 2,000 years. But before we get to that, let's look at today's take-home point. If you're new, that's the one point that I'm going to be making from those four verses that we are going to take home and hopefully that we're going to live out this coming week. And here it is. When it comes to the law, Jesus always expects more, not less. And what I mean by that is going to become more obvious over these next 20 minutes or so. But what we're going to do is we're going to look at four verses that challenge us to look at Jesus in a different way and actually to live our lives in a very different way. Before we get to that, let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your goodness and love. Thank you that you are the creator of all that exists and that you created us to manage this universe with you. God, we thank you that when we turned away from our calling, you didn't turn away from us. Thank you for the opportunity we have to read your word today. And we pray that as we do, that your Holy Spirit will guide our minds, our hearts, our souls, our spirits, our lives, that we might not only hear your voice, but do your will. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you have your mountain monologue study guide, looks like this. We're on page 13 today. As I said, Matthew 5, 17 to 20. This is what Jesus said. Do not think I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until the heaven and the earth shall pass away, not one iota or stroke of a letter shall pass away from the law until it all comes to pass. Whoever breaks one of the least of these commandments and shall teach others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever shall keep and teach them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you all that unless your righteousness is greater than that of the scribes and Pharisees, you shall never enter into the kingdom of heaven. 
So Jesus made two clear points. First, Jesus is the fulfillment of the law. And second, our righteousness must be greater than that of the scribes and Pharisees. So let's look at the first point. Jesus is the fulfillment of the law. We don't have to guess about that. We know that that's the case because he said so. In fact, we're going to read verses 17, 18 again, but I'm going to flip the order because when we do that, it puts the weight on what is the most weighty statement that Jesus fulfills the law. It says it this way, for truly I say to you, until the heaven and the earth shall pass away, not one iota or stroke of a letter shall pass away from the law until it all comes to pass. Do not think I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish, but to fulfill them. So if you're not familiar with the Bible, the Bible is divided into two major sections. Two-thirds of the Bible is what we call the Old Testament, and it talks about things that happened before Jesus came to the earth. And then one-third of the Bible is the New Testament. It's what happened after Jesus came to the earth. But the Jews called the Old Testament three different things. They, they labeled it law, which was the Torah to them, the first five books of the Old Testament. And then the rest of the Old Testament was divided up into what they called the prophets, and the writings. And when Jesus talked about being the fulfillment of the law, he wasn't just talking about those first five books of the Old Testament. He was talking about being the fulfillment of everything written in the law, the prophets, and the writings. And the reason that Jesus' followers have been challenged, confused, and conflicted about Jesus' statement that he's the fulfillment of the law is that many Christians have claimed that the, the Old Testament is no longer necessary. Jesus came, he did everything in the Old Testament, so now we don't even have to read it anymore. We don't have to do anything with it anymore. In fact, they say that the God of the Old Testament isn't even the same God as the God in Jesus because that God seems to be so mean, so, so vindictive. And yet Jesus said that not one letter, not one punctuation mark will go away from the law until the heaven and the earth pass away. So I don't know for sure about heaven. I'm assuming it's still there, but I know the earth is still here. And since we know that the earth is still here, we know that the law has not yet passed away. So what did Jesus mean by that? Over the past 2,000 years, some groups of Jesus' followers have sought to enforce the moral, the judicial, and the ceremonial laws of the Old Testament law, primarily Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, more than 600 laws in everyone's lives in addition to following Jesus. But other groups have said that Jesus fulfilled all that. He did everything that was required. He lived obediently. So we no longer have to live in obedience. We just get to live by God's grace. Neither of those approaches gets to the essence of what Jesus said right here in this, this verse that we just read that Jesus said, until heaven and earth pass away, not one you know, jot or tittle, one iota, one punctuation mark. is not going to fall away until it's all fulfilled. So when we're thinking about the Bible, and I hope you have a Bible, I hope you read the Bible, I hope you read it every day. As you read it, I hope you want to understand it. And if we want to understand the Bible, here's something very important. When we're interpreting the Bible, the first question to ask when you open up your Bible is, what did it mean to the one who spoke it or wrote it? Not what does it mean to me, today, but what did it mean when Jesus said those words 2,000 years ago, what did it mean to Jesus? That's the first thing that we need to know. And as we look at that, we have to first ask the question. When he said he came to fulfill the law, did he mean the moral law? Did he mean the judicial law? 
Did he mean the ceremonial law or all three? As we read Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, 600 plus laws, they break down into those three categories. Moral law. We all know what moral law is. The Ten Commandments are an example of moral law. The first four of the Ten Commandments tell us how we're supposed to relate to God. The last six tell us how we're supposed to relate to each other. Morally, we're supposed to basically, pretty simple, don't kill each other, don't lie to each other, don't steal from each other, those kind of things, moral law. The next part of the law was judicial law. It's the part that's probably confusing to us. Like it says, if your ox gores another ox, then you have to do X. Well, I don't really worry about my ox goring anybody else's ox, do you? I mean, most of us don't have an ox, right? But in those days, they did have oxes, and it's judicial law. What it means is if you do something wrong, there's a legal consequence, and they had judges, and they would adjudicate, and they would pass a sentence. There's a lot of judicial law in the law. And then the last one is ceremonial law. Ceremonial law relates to the priesthood. And it relates to the worship of God. And so the priests had to wear certain vestments. They had to put certain elements in the incense that they, that they sent up to God. There were all of these ceremonial laws. So they dealt with God and the Jews and their relationship with each other. When Jesus said he came to fulfill the law, he meant all three, the moral, the judicial, and the ceremonial law. His death on the cross, for example, did away with a lot of the ceremonial law and even part of the judicial law because a lot of the law said if you do a sin, this kind of sin, in order to be back in relationship with God, you have to kill an animal, maybe a dove, maybe a goat, maybe a cow. But when Jesus died on the cross... He became the ultimate sacrifice, the once and for all sacrifice, so that no blood sacrifice ever needs to be made again. That's all done away with. Many of the ceremonies instituted in the Mosaic Law were fulfilled by Jesus' perfect life, his death on the cross, and his resurrection. Many of the judicial laws, as I said, are obsolete in a service economy. But the moral laws have never changed. Jesus fulfilling the law didn't mean we aren't called to live in obedience, but only Jesus has ever lived the law in 100% obedience. Hold on to that idea. Jesus fulfilled the law in every point, every part of the law in every way. He fulfilled all of the Old Testament prophecies. That's why we look to Jesus and to no one else to be Savior, which means rescuer from sin and death, and Lord, which means master, owner, God in our lives. The law was given to the Jews to guide them to love, to worship, and to serve God. In fact, if you read the law, if you read those books that have all those laws that can seem confusing to our ears today, what they were supposed to do, in fact, God would say this, if you do this, you will live. If you do this, you will be blessed. If you do this, the problem was, no one could follow the law perfectly. No one until Jesus. Jesus did what we could not do. That was a vital way that he demonstrated he is indeed the son of God and worthy of being master in our life. And if the passage ended there, we might assume that Jesus did everything, so all we need to do is sit back and live in his grace. Jesus is our cosmic get-out-of-hell-free card, so we don't have to worry about being obedient because he was obedient. In fact, basically what we need to do is just sit back and wait for the bus to come so we can go to heaven someday. If the passage ended there, maybe so. But Jesus said something else. He said, whoever breaks one of the least of these commandments and shall teach others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever shall keep and teach them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. 
For I say to you all that unless your righteousness is greater than that of the scribes and Pharisees, you shall never enter into the kingdom of heaven. So if you or I break one of these least commandments, Jesus said we're going to be called least in the kingdom of God. But if we keep them and we teach them to others, we'll be called great in the kingdom of God. Now, here was the kicker. Jesus said, looked at the crowd, and he said, For I say to you all that unless your righteousness is greater than that of the scribes and Pharisees, you shall never enter into the kingdom of heaven. And as we read those words, we might think, oh, the Pharisees were a bunch of jerks, and Jesus didn't like them very much, so it's okay, no big deal. If, I mean, how hard could it be to be more righteous than the Pharisees? They were terrible. But if you were sitting in the crowd or standing in the crowd that day, and you heard Jesus say, unless your righteousness is greater than the Pharisees, you just immediately said, it's over. Like, there's no way I can be more righteous than the Pharisees. They're the most righteous people that live. How, how can I do that? And here's the thing. Jesus wasn't talking primarily to the crowd that day. He was talking primarily to the Pharisees. The Pharisees and Jesus, that day, a war started between them. And, and I don't know if you realize, Matthew 5 is the very beginning of the Gospel of Matthew. It has 28 chapters. And what Jesus was doing that day was he was saying to the Pharisees, the way you see righteousness is wrong. The way you see righteousness, external following of the legal standards that were set out by my heavenly father, no, that's not what righteousness is. That's not what fulfilling the law is. In fact, it starts, it starts inside, not outside. It starts with a transformation of the heart. The scribes and Pharisees never understood that for Jesus, obedience to the law starts here. It doesn't start with a bunch of details that they added on to all the laws so that they could look better than everybody else. I mean, the word Pharisee actually means separatist. They separated themselves from everybody else and they actually thought they were better than everybody else. In fact, Jesus showed how much different the Pharisees saw themselves than others with a parable he told. It's a brief little parable, so powerful. We find it in Luke chapter 18. It says this, Then Jesus told this story to some who had great confidence in their own righteousness and scorned everyone else. Two men went to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee and the other was a despised tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed this prayer. Now, I'm not going to pray it exactly as it's written up on the screen. I'm going to be the Pharisee, though. You bunch of losers. I cannot even believe how terrible you are. Bunch of cheaters, bunch of liars, bunch of adulterers, bunch of tax collector. Look at me, God. I fast twice a week. I tithe of everything I get. Thank you, God. But actually, I don't really need you, God, because I'm so good. And then we have the tax collector who doesn't, doesn't have this position. The tax collector is like this. He won't even look up to heaven and he says, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus said, I tell you the truth, it was that tax collector who went away justified and not the self-righteous Pharisee. In fact, at the end of the thing are some words that probably all of us have heard. Jesus said, for those who exalt themselves will be humbled but those who humble themselves will be exalted. Do you see the Pharisee's problem? I mean, he had a lot of problems. I'm gonna just mention four of them. The first one is he separated himself from others as being special. 
Secondly, he based his righteousness on his actions rather than on God's grace. Third, he compared himself to others rather than loving them. And finally, he focused on externals, fasting, tithing, and so on, rather than the heart. Jesus' entire ministry was at odds with the Pharisees because they saw righteousness as external actions and even added new actions. For instance, what did he say? The Pharisee said, I fast twice a week. If you read all of the entire 600 and some laws in the Old Testament law, you're commanded to fast one time a year. Once. Not twice a week, not five times a week, once a year. But they added it on so that they would look better than everybody else. In fact, Jesus constantly called them hypocrites. He called them hypocrites because they acted like they were so religious, but what they really were was self-righteous. They wanted other people to think well of them, not because they were following God, but because they were good in and of themselves in their own efforts. Jesus didn't tell us not to seek to live in obedience. That was never his message to the Pharisees. He calls us to live in obedience that originates in a transformed heart. These four verses place Jesus at the center of human transformation because he would fulfill the law and then by his grace give us the ability to live in obedience to him. How much easier it is for us to argue and debate over whether we're under the law than it is to acknowledge that Jesus always expects more of us, not less. That's one of those things that people just don't want to to acknowledge. But Jesus always expects more, not less. We're going to see that starting next week. Jesus is going to start a series of passages in this message where he's going to say, you've heard that it was said or it was written. For example, you shall not murder or you shall not commit adultery or you shall not get divorced. And then he's going to say, but I say to you. And you know what he's going to do every single time? He's going to make it harder than it was in the original law. Those who would follow Jesus must live in holiness and obedience. And we don't do that to show others how great we are like the Pharisees. We don't do it out of some external set of rules and regulations that we follow so God might someday love us. We do it because Jesus has transformed our hearts. Down through the millennia, Jesus' followers have debated whether we're supposed to live under law or grace, as if Jesus ever separated those realities. We can only live out the law in his grace, in the power of his Holy Spirit, once once we're born again, is what Jesus said, but we are called to continue to live in obedience. In fact, obedience is the best demonstration of faith there is, according to Jesus. You know, Jesus did do away with some things. We don't have to sacrifice animals anymore. I've already said that, but Jesus died on the cross. We don't have to worry about that anymore. Jesus told us, we don't have to worry about all of those dietary rules that you find a lot of in the book of Leviticus and some other places. What he said was, it doesn't matter what you eat. It's not what you put in your mouth that matters. What matters is what comes out of your heart. When you open up your mouth, what kind of things do you say? Because it's out of the abundance of the heart that the mouth speaks. We live in a culture that claims that boundaries and borders and guidelines or structures, they all restrict and all those things are wrong. Anything that gives us boundaries or borders or structure is wrong. It's bad. Because why? Many people say it's because Jesus freed us from all of that. That Jesus gives us the freedom to do whatever we want. That boundaries set by God in the moral law actually make a difference and are good for us is almost foreign to our thinking in this culture today. But the reality is God gave us boundaries and limits 
for the same reason that sports have rules. Can I have that ball, please? Okay. This is a ball. Kind of ball? You might call it a kickball, a dodgeball. I don't know what kind of ball, but I'm going to throw it to Justin. Justin, let's play. What are we playing? Okay, he's playing dodgeball. He knows the rules. I'm not playing with him because he's going to hurt me. Give me that ball back. Okay, but he immediately brought something to mind that everybody knows what dodgeball is. You throw the ball as hard as you can. You try to get somebody out. Some people try to kill people. You know, all right. Somebody else might say, let's play soccer. And if you play soccer, it's a rectangular field. There's goals at each end. There's people that kick the ball. You're not allowed to use your hands unless you're the goalie. There are certain rules. You know, if you just take the ball and you just grab onto it and you run away and, and you just try to hurt each other, that's called rugby. So, but there are rules in sports so that we can have fun. In fact, if I just give you a ball and say, let's play, and you don't have any concept, it's not fun. The reality is, I'm going to give this back to you, okay? I trust you to hold it. Thank you. Okay. God gave us rules. And he didn't give them to us so that our lives would be miserable. He gave them to us so that we could live the life that's truly life. In fact, order and structure is necessary for anything and anyone if we're going to have a good life. So Jesus calls all who would follow him to live a righteousness greater than the scribes and Pharisees. What he means by that is we're not just playing with a bunch of rules. The rules are there to set the boundaries and borders and structures so we can live in love of God and love with each other. I'm going to have to bring up my favorite G.K. Chesterton quote here one more time. I just used it two weeks ago, but I have to use it again. The Christian life has not been tried and found wanting. It's been found difficult and left untried. The longer I live, the more certain I am that discipline and training are gifts from God. I would not have said that 30 years ago that discipline and training are gifts from God. Monday morning, 7.30, I just found out, tomorrow morning, I'm going to undergo the most serious surgery I've ever had, a hip replacement surgery, and I have worked hard to get ready for it. I have done physical therapy exercises every day since February the 10th. I think I missed one day since February 10th. Most recently, for the last month, it's been 75 minutes a day. I've swum a mile a day, six days a week. I've eaten better. I've tried to get more rest. I've done all of those things. And in the past, I would have to have told you, I learned to do those things while playing football, while being on the track team. I, had to, I learned discipline through sports. But I can tell you over the last several years, I've been learning those disciplines by doing something pretty simple, looking at the life of Jesus and doing what he did. Just looking at the life of Jesus and living the kind of life that Jesus did. One of the devil's biggest lies, and it's affirmed by our culture, it, it is one of the biggest lies, and it's affirmed by our culture, is if it's hard, it can't be based in love. Love is supposed to be easy. You know, I've been married for 44 years last week, and I'll be honest with you, it hasn't been easy. It hasn't been easy. In fact, I don't remember a single year where the whole year has been easy out of the 44 years. And in fact, more important than my example, my, my experience is, let's turn to the Bible, Genesis 1-1, to the end of the book of Revelation, and please find me a verse where it says, love is easy. It never does. <laughs> it's no place there. You know, love is patient. That's not easy. Love is kind. That's not easy. You know, love is not jealous, arrogant, or rude. None of those are easy. Love is hard. 
And, and, and our culture tells us, you know, if, if, you're, if your wife or your husband doesn't make you happy all the time, they'll get a new one. And, and the reality is, you're going to take yourself to the next relationship. I hate to tell you. And that's not going to be, that's not going to be any better for you. So the bottom line of what our culture tells us is, if it's hard, like I want to be in good physical condition, but I don't really want to eat well or exercise. Sorry, that's not going to work out too well for you. You know, one of the things I, I love is our worship team here at New Life. And I, I pulled the worship team that's here this weekend. Nick plays the guitar. Nick's been playing the guitar for 25 years. I don't think I would want to hear Nick play the guitar 25 years ago. But I sure like hearing him play today. My daughter, Emmy, picked up the oboe when she was in fifth grade. Trust me, do not have your kid pick up an oboe if she isn't going to become good at it. Because the oboe is one of the nastiest sounding instruments when you can't play it. Thankfully, she got good at it in a short period of time. The reality of our lives is anything worthwhile takes effort. You know, everybody, if, if I say to you, do you want to go up in life or do you want to go down in life? People say, I want to go up in life. But you know what up means? <laughs> it means it's hard. Up is hard. Down is easy. You can fall down. When's the last time you fell up? It doesn't happen. It takes effort and energy. And what Jesus is saying, Jesus is saying, if you want to live the life that's truly life, you're going to have to do better than the Pharisees. Because all they're doing is following a bunch of rules and, and trying to make themselves look good. But what you need to do is you need to turn to me. And you need to rely on me and let me give you the life that is truly life. And then, yeah, you're going to have to follow some rules. Because life is intended to be ordered and structured. When Adam and Eve fell into sin, life started being hard. Before that, it was easy. But even then, they had to take care of the garden. There was still some work involved, right? So the truth is this. God's purpose for our lives in Jesus is to live his grace in obedience. Holiness is not a feeling. It's an action. So many people in our culture think that holiness, if they even care about holiness, which is being separated to God, is a feeling. And they think that holiness means listening to worship music. And I'll be honest with you, when we sing the worship music we sing here, I feel good. And it makes me feel closer to God. That's this much of holiness. Most of holiness is out there. It's every day doing the things. In fact, somebody said to me today, are you a good patient or a bad patient? And I said, I hope I'm a good one, but I really haven't really ever had to be a patient very much, just a couple of times. And, and, and what I really mean is, I hope that the disciplines that I've been practicing in spiritual terms will mean that tomorrow, when I wake up from the delirium of surgery, that the first thing I say is something kind. I don't know if it will be, but I hope it will be, right? I, I hope that by living in holiness, practicing it every day, that it will just become natural over time. You see, holiness is an action, which means what? It's hard until it isn't. Nick probably found it hard to play the guitar 25 years ago. Jane probably found it hard to play the piano 50 years ago. But now it isn't. And if I wanted to play the piano today, it'd be hard. And I don't know how long it would be hard, but it would be a while. But the thing is, the more we practice something effectively, you know, practice doesn't make perfect. Perfect practice makes perfect. Practice makes permanent. 
So what we practice day by day by day, it becomes who we are. And that's all Jesus was saying. You want to be a Pharisee? It's not that hard. Follow a bunch of rules and pretend you're better than everybody else. How hard is that? You want to be a child of my heavenly father? Well, that's hard because you have to turn over your life to him. So here's the next step for this week. If you want to start that practice or continue that practice, perfect that practice, I will obey Jesus and teach others to do the same because that's what Jesus said would require us to do if we want to be great in the kingdom of heaven. Is it going to be easy? No, it's going to be really hard until it isn't. It's going to be hard, and it'll get easier, and it'll get easier. Eventually, it'll be easy. This life has never been easy since Adam and Eve rejected God's rule in our lives. The only question is, are we going to experience the pain that leads to transformation as we follow Jesus, or are we going to follow a a kind of life that's filled with pain that leads to death? And there are two extremes of ways to follow the pain that leads to death. We can be like the Pharisees and we can live a religious legalistic life and that is miserable and we die and we go to hell. I mean, that's what Jesus said, not me. Or we can live this other kind of life where we do whatever we want. Whatever we want. And we feel good for a, a couple minutes, a couple hours, a couple weeks, a couple months, maybe a couple years. But eventually we're in the trap of addiction or we're just in a thing of I don't care and life doesn't matter. Those are two extremes that come from the same thing, pursuing pain that doesn't redeem. And the only kind of pain that does redeem is pain that comes from living a life in Jesus Christ. As we do that, as we do that, Jesus offers us the true freedom. And it is true freedom that comes from grace-filled obedience to the law in the power of the Holy Spirit. He has fulfilled the law. He did it. Every single one of those rules. And now we get to live out his victory in our lives through his transforming presence and power every single moment. Amen? So the only way any of us are ever going to live that life that I just mentioned, that holy life, that life like Jesus, is first of all by letting Jesus be Lord, which means master, owner, God, or Savior in our lives. If you've never done that, one of the things I I want to underline one more time, following Jesus is simple, but it's not easy. I mean, if you think what we just talked about today was a little challenging, wait till he talks about murder and divorce and adultery and vows. And then wait till he talks about giving and praying and fasting. (laughs) And then wait till he tells about not judging I mean, every single week, and I'm not trying to get you to not come back next week. I'm trying to get you to come back every week and and say, this life is impossible until Jesus is Savior and Lord in your life. So if you're not there yet, that's okay. Remember, Jesus is ready for anybody who's humble and and who's poor in spirit, who is mourning because of the condition of their life right now, and, and who is meek. If that's you and you want to pray for Jesus to come in and become leader, owner of your life, then let's pray. I'll pretend I'm you. And you don't have to pray these exact words, but it's a transfer of ownership from you to Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for who you are, the God of the universe, the creator of everything that exists. I thank you for sending Jesus here when we turned away from you so that we can know you and so that we can live out the promise of living meaningful lives here and now, not just in heaven someday, 
And God, I admit that I'm a sinner, that I don't play the games by the rules, and I make up my own rules a lot. God, I believe, I believe that Jesus is who he said he is, the fulfillment of the law. I believe that he has the power to give me a new life, and I receive it right now. And I confess that Jesus is Savior and Lord in my life. And I ask right now for a filling of your Holy Spirit that I can be changed from the inside out more and more and more every single moment. And God, for all of us that have prayed a prayer like that at some point, I pray that you'll fill us new and fresh with your Holy Spirit, that you'll let us live that freedom that only comes within your limits which gives us life that is truly life today, tomorrow, the next day, and forever. We pray this prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.